I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. Head for the side. Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounce on its point. Wow. Sanctioned headbands on, ladies. <laughs> it's time for the Outer Sanctum. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am Emma Race, and as always, I am joined by my motley crew of football talking friends. Tears sitting to my right. How are you, Dr. Kate Zia? I'm good. Hawthorne, never in doubt. I never doubted them. <laughs> Didn't tip us, you loser. I tipped them in my own tipping. Private. Tipping. We're not talking about this. Mm. Felicity Race, how are you? I'm. I'm a bit conflicted today. Can you love a winter sport but really not like the winter part of it? <laughs> yes. Not ready for this. Lace up your jumper. It's going to be a long winter. Lucy Race, how are you? Hi, I'm really great. Thanks. Hello, Nicole Hayes. How are you? Hello, Emma Race. I'm very well, thank you. And the eternally pumped, pumped Alicia. Pumped. Alicia pumped. pumped sometimes. How are you? Good. Good. <laughs> Must be interesting in your house at the moment, all black and white. Yeah, what a what a season for the Hawks and the Pies. We'll get there soon enough, but let's kick off with a new... We have a new crap segment every week. <laughs> we should have a breaker for it, like with a little jingle and everything, but this crap segment's going to be brought to you by <laughs> Kate Zia, and it's called Omen Check. <laughs> da, 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 da. I don't know if it's crap. It probably is. <laughs> so, yeah, instead of this week, instead of looking at the ladder which is what I like to do and see if it's in alphabetical order or something. I Something else caught my eye. And you know how things come in threes? People say things come in threes. There was there were three omens this week, which I'm going to just put it out there. I think spell the end of the world is nigh. Right. The first one is that there were two games this weekend where there was a scoreline exactly identical to uh, a previous match. So, for example... GWS beat Sydney this weekend. The score was 15-15-105 to 9-9-63. And that was the exact same score as the, the two teams when they played last year. Which oh, is spooky. Oh, oh, my. This then, isn't crap at all. This is, <laughs> this is Groundhog Day. I have, to, I have to thank Giggs, too, who's one of our listeners who I see, I see on Twitter. He, he picked this up. Geelong also beat St Kilda this week. The score was 19-12-126 to 13-10-88. And that was the same scoreline as when those two teams played in 1986. <gasps> oh, oh, shocking. Wow. Okay, so that's that's really spooky. That's the first omen, this kind mm-hmm. of very unusual that was a good situation. Year, 86 too. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so that was a that's the first omen. The second omen is that Richmond are undefeated. <laughs> Five <laughs> nil. And then the third omen is that North Korea threatened to nuke us. This week. <laughs> so I think in oh, combination, this th- these these three we're, extraordinarily we're end of days, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we are. These three extraordinarily rare events—they've all come together at the one time. I think the end of the world is nigh. Just putting it out there. So uh, you know, pack pack your bags, pack your bunkers, get in your bunkers, <laughs> fill your bathtubs, ladies. <laughs> what do you got, Lucy? Race? I'm just going to add because I think we had um, fake news stats was our other segment from last. 
week. Um, the stat I've got about Richmond is that their five and zip start is their best opening in 22 years. Um, but also, they were down by 23 points at three-quarter time and they came back to win by 13. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think that is their either their second best or their best comeback under Dimmer. Yes, I heard that it was. Yeah. Okay, so the, uh, uh, the I just wanted to go with the stuff's stat. just going crazy now. Stuff's wow, just going crazy. People are going to recognise us this week. There's so many numbers. <laughs> I never knew my fate would be in GWS. <laughs> I know. Who would have known? I am more terrified of Richmond than I am of North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Is that okay to say wow. that? Well, they always beat us in August. You think they're, yeah. they're firing well? right now? Um, there was lots to like about what came out of the weekend's um, footy. Lucy, you probably watched every single game as you do. Well, I did. I watched a few and so did other people because it was the second highest round attendance ever. Um, only 8,421 people short of the all-time record and I blame Hawthorne supporters because it was a really good game and there weren't enough people there. So no. we could have topped it. That's I know. True. It was really, it was actually pretty empty, wasn't it? it we was were really playing empty. West Coast, so why aren't you blaming they didn't travel? Yeah. No, but I, f- I feel like um, people had kind of said, mm. oh, they thought like maybe... Dr. Kate's here, that we weren't going to win, so they didn't turn up. But Are they you saying they're bandwagon supporters? Maybe. But they yeah. did turn up to Richmond, Melbourne. That was an extraordinary explosive. Which, Nostradamus, you predicted two weeks earlier, and I will say you had a bit of help because you'd already been trying to get tickets because you're so, <laughs> like, uh, you're so, your anxiety around ticketing is so huge. That I like to plan. You, yeah, so, like, 22 days out, you knew that it was going to be a sellout. It was it was pretty impressive. Alicia, we're going to come to you for Collingwood Watch because um, there's been some talk. I know that you you've come from a Collingwood household. Yeah, look, there's been there's been talk about Bucks and what and what he's doing and his achievement. I mean, Collingwood are ranked last in goal kicking and set shot accuracy, and everyone's saying that Buckley should work on the midfield forward uh, synergy was the word that was used. And uh, and Collingwood uh, plays the Cats this Sunday. I don't know. Cats are doing pretty well. It's there's it's no going to be a bit that. scary. No, there's no way they win that. Um, no. <laughs> I don't know. The end of the world is not. Yeah, no, so anything could happen. Anything's possible. Well, no. Adelaide, Richmond, someone's got to win, right? Mm. Top yeah, of the yeah. table clash. That's going to be amazing. I can't wait for that. It's massive. Um, but I, do you know what I was looking at? Uh, it was the was language, right, this week. Um, the language with freedom of speech would be three words that I'd like to talk about but I won't. I'll talk about moment of truth because everyone was talking about Collingwood and saying, well, this is Buck's moment of truth. And this is Pendlebury's moment of truth. And I looked back at the meaning of moment of truth, you know, a critical or decisive time in which one is put to the ultimate test. It was first used in Ernest Hemingway's story, Death in the Afternoon, and it's got to do with bullfighting, you know, your moment of truth. And uh, the Spanish is el memento de la verdad. Apologies to Spanish people. (laughs) Uh, absolutely. And I looked back at 40 years of headlines and the moment of truth. So this is a, what you call a found poem. Uh, it's just moments of truth in, in writing. So the MCG on Easter Monday, the moment of truth for Hawthorne, the moment of truth for the Dockers, Eagles, moment of truth, cli- critical clash with Geelong, Bulldogs, moment of truth, expect to see a bit of extra bite in their bark, the moment of truth has arrived for the rebooted Crows, Brad McKenzie's moment of truth, Melbourne's key forward Mitch Clark's moment of truth will come next. The, that was a moment of truth for Geelong and Nathan Buckley is facing his ultimate <laughs> moment of truth. 
West Coast coach Adam Simpson says the Eagles' destiny is in their own hands as they prepare for their moment of truth. The moment of truth has arrived for Hawthorne's free agency acquisition key defender, James Frawley. Remember that, kids? <laughs> the moment of truth has come for Greater Western Sydney. It was a moment of truth that he sat there with Travis Cloak. Geelong set to face its moment of truth. The man most anticipated AFL press conference is just a few weeks away as Essendon face their moment of truth. <laughs> Matthew Pavlidge leads his leads Fremantle team onto the field for their moment of truth. The moment of truth came at the 30-minute mark of the first quarter when teammate Dermot Brereton kicked. The moment of truth for Western Bulldogs and Sydney Swans has almost arrived. For Collingwood, the moment of truth really came two weeks beforehand when Phil Carmen was suspended for two weeks, striking <laughs> Hawthorne's Michael Tuck in the second semi-final. Saints are in their real moment of truth. The moment of truth came when Richmond got within seven points. And in other news, Robert Muir leaves the VFL tribunal <laughs> last night in his moment of truth. <laughs> Melbourne key forward Mitch Clark's moment of truth will come next. The moment of truth has arrived for the rebooted... Essendon, star Geelong forward Steve Johnson. His moment of truth is probably going to be minutes away. Saturday morning has its moment of truth. This is the most important moment of truth. They have faced many moments of truth. This is their moment. So many moments. <laughs> we know it. Ross Lyons next tweet's going to be. That was brilliant. And it was interestingly off the back of um, Eddie got a bit poetic this week. <laughs> he did. Trying to defend. Well, he defended... Uh, Nathan Buckley so hard I wondered whether it was a roundabout kiss of death that went died got resurrected re-died got resurrected (laughs) again I don't know but he was calling his own club scum and he was taking people back to the you know 150 years ago which is in its own way him just stamping their authority and their are you saying that was Eddie's moment of truth I think it might have been Eddie's moment of truth I feel like Alicia's now planted an earworm so (laughs) every time anyone hears a commentator say moment of truth we all have to scream bingo yes (laughs) yes can can I just say by the way just as a random aside on commentators I have to a few weeks ago I I raised some concerns I had about some of the things that commentators say this weekend I heard several times people say that Big Cox had taken it with both hands yes and I I do do feel did you have to go there did he then spray it across the face I do I I hate that one it's like an earworm it's an earworm to me I just think commentators have to be careful when they're talking about Big Cox or when they say their ball control is amazing (laughs) These are all things that football dishes up, people. We're just speaking the moment of truth. Totally. Felicity, you are our Essendon Watch correspondent. Essendon and Collingwood had their moment of truth um, (laughs) during the Anzac Day game. And it was really, it was hanging in the balance. Did you enjoy the game? I loved the game. I thought it was a great game. And, you know, Alicia's just talked about the, I guess, the, poetry of commentary around the game and I think there's so much of that around Anzac Day isn't there oh, you know yeah. they do it very well I think now in terms of the you know what goes on beforehand and the respect and all of that and you know I think in some respects there are some similarities in language between football and war that are okay to use you know you can talk about courage and mateship and teamwork but there's every year it comes up you know whether or not you should actually be making direct comparisons to mm. These are, this is a sporting game. This isn't actual war. And, you know, I think Patrick Smith a few years ago said it best when he said, if you want to know the difference, just look at the injury list at the end. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that, that's the best way to tell. But having said that, I think what they have done since they 
you know, it was Kevin Sheedy back in the 90s who really, you know, had this idea. There's been such a resurgence of interest in, um, you know, that sort of, I guess, that nationalism. And I don't know, does, does it feel more like an Australian day to you than Australia Day does? Does it feel more... Do you think there's more pride out there? I think because Australia Day is so conflicting. Well, this <laughs> is many it. people and so fraught. It. It's a but tricky I, one. You know, I, I don't see it as a glorification, you know, myself. I see it as, you know, there's a nod now to the people who are currently serving. Um, there's beautiful TV packages of, you know, people over there at the moment, you know, mums and dads who are working, you know, in sort of conflict situations with their footy jumpers on saying hi to their families. And, and I love that football's been able to do that, so... Okay. Yeah, I I um I read a really good article on the weekend, which I encourage people to have a look at, by Russell Jackson, who's a friend of ours who writes for The Guardian, where he unpacked some of the complexities and tensions around Anzac Day. And I think he made a number of really good points. He, you know, he made, you know, his kind of key point was that sport is not war and we should be very careful about the language that we use around it. Um, but he also raised some concerns about the commercial commercialization of Anzac Day and the commercial exploitation of Anzac Day that's not just confined to sport but is is broader. And I think those were some really important observations, you know, where there's a kind of distinction, I guess, between being respectful and um, remembering and commemorative and then also commercialising things. And I think he did a really good job of teasing out what's perhaps a bit uncomfortable or awkward about Anzac Day and what, what's what's decent and respectful. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I just, I think probably the only, which when the, all the language is so um, focused around alcohol and, and the gambling aspect of it, you just kind of think, oh, I hope that's not the main legacy of, of Anzac Day. It just gets a little blurred sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, I do think they're, they're getting more, people more conscious of that now. One thing that was interesting that I've heard people say about Anzac Day and the football is that they've used it as a way to educate and that, that children are getting more of an education about Anzac Day through football. Off the back of that, I want to say if children are getting information and education through football about Anzac Day, then they're also getting it about other things. It's true. And there was another topic that came up this week and that was some really poor use of language and Heath Shaw has actually apologised for the mm. language that he used but we would really like to talk about that here today. Mm. So, Nicole Hayes, would you lead us in a discussion? Yeah, <laughs> look, there were a couple of incidents actually. So there was the spectator at the Lions Bulldogs game who shouted out at the Lions trainer, I'm not going to repeat it, but it involved Chinese takeaway and clearly a racial epithet. The offender hasn't been identified and, you know, the police are investigating and that kind of a thing. So, you know, there's not much you can do about that for the moment. But it does kind of remind you of the of the importance of language and how there's a whole lot of people not getting the message. The other incident that you pointed to there, Em, was the Heath Shaw and again, I don't want to use the language, but there's a really offensive word that is often used as a disability slur that needs to basically be removed from our language if, if you know, if, if there's any justice. But the consequence of that was it was great that he apologised quickly and I think that uh, for the most part, most people were angry about it and that's a good thing. The challenge I think has been that some of the commentary has been focused on this idea of what should and shouldn't be said and what or what should happen to him and what he should have done and and the issue of what's in the rules and what's not, including Jonathan Brown, who referred to the fact that it's actually not listed in the rules. So so homophobia and racial slurs and sexism, actually not sexism, I don't think that's not in there either. Respect towards women yeah, is covered towards, though. Yeah. But this is outside of the rules and... I don't know. Look, my final take from all of this, because we do talk about this in a bit more detail in a little bit, but um, 
if you don't, uh, Carly Finlay wrote an excellent piece about why it's so important and why this language is hurtful and damaging. And I guess instead of asking why should people be paying attention to this, what we should be asking is why wouldn't you want to? You know, it's just it, people are being hurt. People are telling you that, you know, they're already marginalised. They're already in a position of disadvantage. It's time for us to listen and pay more attention. Lucy, you saw something really interesting this week. I did. And I think the thing that I was gobsmacked by, I guess, was the fallout afterwards and the discussion after this happened. And I think that actually is a lot more illuminating about where community the community thinks on this topic. I saw a take by a footy journalist who called anyone who found Heath Shaw's language offensive, um, he was calling people sanctimonious and basically saying it's not an issue, move on, PC gone mad. And then in the very next... Drink. Can I say whenever somebody says PC, PC gone, mad, gone mad, I just yeah. want to drink. In the very next paragraph went to town on the individual who'd made the racist slur. What I think people are forgetting is that when you use this particular word, it is exactly the same as using a racist or a homophobic word. And the flow on from that is that in a lot of print media I saw where the language was reprinted, that they'd blotted out the F word, but had left the R word there Mm. in black and white. And I'm going to use, I'm going to say if it was the N word, that would have been blotted out. And I think there's a real disconnect and... That's something that I think needs to be examined. What it has illuminated, though, is that there is a massive gap in the education around this, given that the AFL don't have a stance on don't have a policy on it and haven't really addressed it. However, we know that Heath Shaw knew it was something he wanted to retract and wanted to apologise mm. for. And actually, the commentator at the time, I think it was Paul Roos, said, we apologise to viewers yeah. if you heard that just then. So people know that it's not the right thing to say. Mm. I, too, was shocked by what the fallout was, by people saying, I'll get over it. And I think that, you know, maybe 10 years ago that's what we were hearing about racist slurs so the education what we know is that with education it can actually change the conversation ignorance is no excuse and uh, i think you made some great points there but we did um we stands to reason that nothing about us without us um so we've gone to um find someone who can speak on this a little bit clearer and probably with more authority than us nicole yeah lucy and i got to chat with jack's jackie brown who's a disability and lgbti consultant and writer she's written for junkie daily life the feminist observer or the abc's own ramp up among a whole lot of other places and she had a lot to tell us about how we should go forward with this Jax, thanks for joining us. Um, recently, we became aware of Heath Shaw using a disability slur on the footy field, which was caught on microphone and, and went to air. Can you tell us, as a person with a disability, how this sort of language makes you feel and why? Well, look, it's hurtful and it makes me feel sad. And it's hurtful because I've had it used directly against me throughout my life particularly as a young person going to school, but also sometimes still occasionally as an adult, directly people will say things, but also um, in the public domain and things like this, to hear that ableist language, to hear that disability slurs are still used as a matter of course, and there's very little action or education taken, makes me really sad because I feel like there's such a long way to go in addressing how people with disabilities are perceived in society and how we're spoken about. 
Jax, it's Lucy here. The message seems to be slowly getting through to people that you can't use racist or homophobic language, but there seems to be a real lack of understanding about why using disability slurs as an insult is hurtful. Why do you think there is that disconnect? Um, I think it's kind of twofold. I think there are a large portion of the Australian population that are aware that it's an insult directly against people with disabilities and that it comes from kind of an historical devaluing of people with disabilities and they, and they realise that these words kind of reflect that and are hurtful. But then I do think there are some people still in the population that don't actually realise the word, the R word, which was used in mm. this case, is actually a slur against a particular uh, part of the disability population. So I think there needs to be widespread education on what these terms actually mean, where they come from, and why we need to really stop using them. Um, and, I'm, and I'm gay myself, I'm a lesbian, and so I do still hear homophobic slurs yeah. a lot in public space. And I think when you come from a minority group that slurs are being used about, you're kind of more aware of them when you hear them out and about. I particularly hear them from um, young teenage kids on the train and using public transport. They will often say, that's so gay, that kind of thing. But I think particularly for well-known sports people and celebrities and um, you know people that are, that are prominent in Australian society, there is slowly becoming an awareness that you can't use homophobic or, or racist language because there'll be consequences. But when it comes to disability slurs, in this instance and others, I think it really highlights that people just aren't taking it seriously. They're not taking action. Um, the comment that the comment was met with a lot of anger and frustration at the time, mm. which I guess is reassuring. Um, and the player quickly apologised, which is also fairly new, I think, in this space. But mm. there did remain some disquiet among comment commentators about policing language and how the rule shouldn't apply, quote, in the heat of the moment. Mm. How do you respond to this sort of thinking and, and how best to change it? Yeah, I mean, I think this thing of the heat of the moment is interesting because I think often in the heat of the moment, uh, people use language and say particular things that reflect their underlying beliefs and reflect the underlying beliefs of the society in which we live, which is ableist and which is built around these ideas that people with disabilities are somehow inherently less than other people. Um, and I think one of the big ways we need to change it, and one of the ways we can begin to change it in this case, and particularly around sport, is to have disability awareness training come mm. into clubs and actually talk to people, talk to players, and have people with disabilities who live the experience, like myself, deliver that training and bring that lived experience and expertise and knowledge about um, why this stuff is hurtful and how we actually can change it. I think we're starting to see what people educate on, you know, racism and homophobia, and that's great to have those those leaders out there doing that work, but we're not seeing the same level of education and training around disability, and I think this is one clear way forward where we could actually start to do that. So do you think this was a bit of a missed opportunity by the AFL? And do you think there are other things that the AFL, which is a very powerful organisation in terms of influencing the things that we talk about, are there ways that they could handle these issues better in future? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think they could have a, a standard. And part of that standard is that using language like that is unacceptable. And mm -hmm. I think an apology is a first step, but I would have really liked to see him 
have some financial penalty in a similar way that if he'd done a homophobic or racist slur, he would have had a financial penalty and probably a suspension and some training and some space to think about why the language that he was using was inappropriate. So I, th I think we need to hold ableist um, and disability slurs to the same standard that we hold other kinds of discrimination against minorities in Australia. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Jax. No worries. Thanks, Jax. Thank you. Great to chat to Jax, and I think she gave us quite a lot to think about moving forward. I wanted to um, bring up, if it's okay, this week they brought out the nominees or the considerations for who's going to be elevated into legend status in the AFL Hall of Fame. So you'll know that, that that's really cherry on top stuff. That's for, like, that's very few people get in there. And I looked up what the criteria, criteria was because, um, so Wayne Carey's being looked at and I've got to say, uh, it rankles me a little bit to see Wayne Carey. And we, we have fielded a lot of queries from listeners over the time um, about people who feel uncomfortable with Wayne Carey being still an icon, I guess, that is in the public eye and represents the AFL. But to be fair, I think that I've always thought it's actually Channel 7 have made that call to have Wayne Carey at the helm and that the AFL can't sanction or can't, don't, they don't have, you know, the authority to tell the broadcaster maybe they do I don't know but I've always seen that as a Channel 7 decision but we received an email from um, a listener a little while ago called Sophia and I just wanted to say um, read out a little bit of what she says she says, I was wondering what you all thought of Wayne Carey being hired by Channel 7. It was a real slap in the face to turn on the TV and see Wayne Carey there. What does an ex-footballer have to do to be considered unacceptable to be a representative for the AFL? Channel 7 with the AFL, she goes on to kind of talk about the broadcaster and what the, what the responsibility is, I suppose, in who represents the game. Now... It's tricky talking about Wayne Carey because we do believe in everybody having second chances and redeeming yourself. And as we've spoken about on the program before, our mail is that he has been rehabilitated and that he has done a lot of work on himself. But it does rankle me a little bit, I have to say, when I see him being still really rewarded by the game constantly. And I think it's fair that he has a role to play because he was a champion of the game. But when we talk about elevating someone from Hall of Fame to legend status, I feel like that's something that should be reserved for someone who has not tarnished the game in any way. But when I looked up what the criteria was, it says... The Hall of Fame has a special category for inductees known as the legends. Individuals are selected, selected for legend status if they have had a particularly significant positive impact on the game of AFL. That's so quite broad, isn't it? It's very broad. It's not specific to just on the field. Should it be? Maybe we can talk about what he's been uh, accused of or... It's, uh, well, Con convicted of. And, sorry, yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe we should talk about just the facts because a lot of people think that it's about his extracurricular activities. That's not at all what I'm referring exactly. to. Yeah, and yeah. I, re I really yeah, sorry. think listeners should know that. That what are we referring to off field? Kate. <laughs> someone had, sure someone had a to. list before. Yeah. I'm not sure why it falls to me. Okay, so uh, there's a few things. I guess um, some of our listeners might not be familiar with with Wayne Carey's performance both on field and then some of the issues that have um, 
plagued him off field. So off field, I think in 1997, he pleaded guilty to indecent assault after grabbing a woman's breasts on the, on the street in Melbourne. And then uh, in 2007, so after he had retired, his girlfriend at the time accused him of having smashed a wine glass in her face, cutting her mouth and neck. That was over in the United States, as some of our listeners will remember. Um, And police came to the scene. He kicked a female police officer in the face and he was convicted for assaulting the officer, but his former girlfriend didn't proceed with any um, charges against him. And um, so I guess the, the question mark that we're alluding to is whether a person who has been a legend of the game in terms of his on-field performance can be elevated or given the highest accolade that the game can bestow on somebody when there's been this history of violence towards women or, or um, engagement with police. Yeah, I think that the AFL has to be aware that this is a, effectively a branding process. So they need to be thinking about that. But I mean, perhaps they could introduce a minimum standard of behaviour. And I would hope that a minimum standard of behaviour off the field would not include any history of violence or you know, criminal acts that involve violence. Whenever I see Wayne Carey on the broadcast or when I hear about whether he's going to be elevated to legend status, those other issues from his life come to mind. And so it's inextricably linked. And I think that's the issue for the AFL going forward. Mm-hmm. I think there are two points. I mean, one for me is I'm, I'm not quite sure actually of what my view is on this. I think looking at the criteria is really useful, Emma, because, you know, and you read out the criteria earlier. I guess one of the um, question marks that a number of people have had, and as you said, we've had a, a number of our listeners contact us about some of this stuff, is that it's actually unclear to us whether a person who is being considered for elevation to legend status should have these other components of their life taken into account. And so I do think there is a need for the AFL to, at the very least, be a bit more transparent about what those criteria mean. And 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 if, for example, they say a person's, you know, what's happened off field is never taken into account, full stop, then they should come out and say that. I think, mm. you know, mm. that, that these are the sorts of things that I think should be aired publicly so that yeah. there's a transparent process. But the other thing for me is that in a way I think there's an analogy between this sort of stuff and... Um, what happens, say, in the arts, you know, people like Roman Polanski and many others who have been accused or convicted or pled guilty to these kinds of offences, you know, there's always that question uh, about whether you can separate the art from the artist, whether you can appreciate Roman Polanski's films uh, in light or, you know, even Woody Allen's films in light of the allegations, accusations or, or things that they've been found guilty of. And, um, you know, a few years ago, Roman Polanski was... Given, I think he was inducted into the Academy Awards Hall of Fame or whatever the whatever mm, the and he uh, couldn't accept it because he can't step on US. He can't mm, come turf. back. To, well, he could come back to the no, United he'd States. Get arrested. He's chosen not to, and so that debate, I think, uh, there's an analogy here between whether you can admire the on-field exploits of someone like Wayne Carey, despite the fact that these other things have happened in his life, and I'm not sure of what the answer to that is. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean we. It is something about the considering that whole package, but I think in particular with the legend status, it's restricted to a certain number. Ten percent can only be of the whole Hall of Fame that can be elevated. These are highly sought after positions. Are there not other players who would be more eligible or better placed to represent the AFL as a legend than Wayne Carey? I just really worry about the message that it sends mm-hmm. um, to people who are at home and struggling 
you know, with violent issues and in the home and things like that. I really worry about the message it sends. The AFL have got an opportunity and a platform to send a different message. I think at the very least too, I wonder whether they consult with experts on on these mm. issues, whether they consult with women's groups or advocates, people like Rosie Batty and, and so on. I think um, those people should have a, an opportunity to be part of this conversation and for there to be a dialogue. Uh, that might be beneficial anyway. The GWS Sydney game was a white ribbon game and in the lead up to that we um, took an opportunity, Kate Sear and I, to speak to one Mr Phil Cleary who has been doing some amazing work in that area for pretty much my entire lifetime. Yeah, so Phil Cleary almost needs uh, no introduction, although some of our listeners outside of Victoria might not know, know who he is. So just a quick recap. Phil played 205 games and kicked 317 goals for Coburg Football Club in the um, VFA. He was the coach and for a time the captain coach of that club and he coached them to uh, to -to back-to-back flags in 88-89. But his life has really, public life anyway, has come to be defined by an um, incident that happened in 1987 when his 25-year-old sister Vicky was stabbed to death by her former partner. And this led Phil to engage in what has been a lifelong campaign, as you said, Emma, against violence against women. He went on to be elected to federal parliament as an independent member for Wills after Bob Hawke, if you remember that, if you're old enough, and for many decades has played just an absolutely invaluable role in cultural and legal reform in this area. Phil Cleary, thank you so much for joining us on the Outer Sanctum today. It's a real honour. Well, it's a privilege for me. Great to be talking to two women about an important question of footy and social context. Thanks, Phil. Look, um, I wanted to start off by saying that for as long as Emma and I can remember, your name has been synonymous with footy, but also synonymous with uh, opposing violence against women. And you've been doing this work for decades. Uh, When you started out, I think you were probably the lone voice for many years, the lone male voice in the football sphere opposing violence against women. And you no longer are, which I think is a real plus. But um, I wonder, does it pain you that you were still talking about these issues decades on or do you feel that the load has been lifted a little bit, that you're no longer the lone voice in this sphere? Well, I'd have to say we're in a far better place than we were 30 years ago. But I should also say that 30 years ago there was a broad social campaign around violence towards women and feminists and feminist barristers and feminists from the community sector, from law and refuges and community health, were the people that I became embedded with, you know, at the time. I I had the advantage of football, which gave me a platform, you know, and so there was an irony in that that I could then talk about my sister's case and talk to popular culture. But uh, finally... No, it doesn't pain me. I think that this kind of problem is very complex and I'll discuss some of the reasons why I think it is as we go on. You've been around footy clubs your whole life. Footy clubs can be notoriously really tough places. When you started speaking out again about violence against women and domestic violence, did you find that the footy club environment was accepting of that? Or back in the day, were they a bit like, oh, this is a private matter, don't talk about it here? 
I think in general terms, it was looked at as a private matter. I mentioned the other day to someone in conversation, I don't reckon VFA players wore black armbands in 1987 after my sister was murdered in the finals. Yet I was a known VFA and football person. It was a quiet matter. And even at the funeral, you know, we were in such shock that none of us did a eulogy at the funeral. I did the eulogy at the graveyard, but it was sort of like you didn't know how to talk about it in a public setting. There's violence against women in the supposedly domestic setting, even though my sister had been separated for three months. But in the footy club, I'd already made a mark. Look, I went to football with a degree in politics and sociology and I was left wing. And in my footy club, I had a level of leadership and status uh, that was, you know, could be difficult for men to take on. If they wanted to take me on over it, kind of intellectually, and I don't mean intellectually in, a, in an elitist way, but just as a thinking person, uh, they would have to be pretty on, switched on about it. But I did, I, did, I did go to war occasionally with men, and we did things like ending strip shows at the Coburg Footy Club. They just went out and I what said... What year was that? Well, by the... By the uh, by the mid-80s, yep. gone, mm-hmm. because we accepted, mid to late 80s, accepted we couldn't be doing that, and that, partly about my experience. But I should add also, look, you know, I went to footy having read Jermaine Greer, so I was a bit unusual. <laughs> and, sure. and, Kate, you touched on that. I, I was an unusual person for the footy world at the time. Yep. Yes. One thing that um, has caught my attention, especially um, when we looked at Port Adelaide and Adelaide playing in what they called the showdown, was that there's a long-held belief that footy is the place you go to take out aggression. And mm. you've worked closely. You, yeah. I imagine you enjoy sitting and having a chat to Les Twentyman. What's your feeling about football being a place where you take out aggression? I don't like the concept anymore. I might have years ago, but I coach kids at West Coburg now and I don't want them to be aggressive so much. I want them to have a great adrenaline rush. I want them to tackle hard. I want them to, you know, have an ascendancy over their opponent because in the end you have to do it. But I don't want untoward things. I don't want people to be concussed. I don't want people to be hurt. I don't like sling tackles where a bloke's got, it's a form of bullying. You grab some bloke, he's he's disarmed, you ram his head into the ground. If I hear people supporting that, I, I go nuts. Mm. But I, I look, footy, it's funny, you know, and we're talking about footy and, and you mentioned uh, Adelaide and Eddie Betts. I was a forward I kicked 318 goals in 205 games and I kicked seven in a game and six and five and four. So I had this identity through goal kicking. So I love that part of the game and the fact Adelaide are kicking a lot of goals. So I think it's less about aggression than it is about great cohesion. That's what I love about the game. It's the team that has the best cohesion. Of course, you've got to have a skill. That becomes the winning team. Aggression's a bit overplayed, I think. What about aggression from a fan's perspective? Because I think sometimes people turn up to the footy and think they can drop their moral code. Yeah, and I think also too, Phil, one of the things that I hear people saying occasionally is that for fans and also for players that footy is a way for, particularly for men, to um, expel their kind of natural aggression. And I Mm. use the word natural in inverted commas there. I want, you know, what is it, what's your view on those kind of claims and arguments that are well, made about the place of footy? Well, look, I think it's probably true that it, it, you expunge a whole lot of anxiety through football. So let's say that's a good thing, and I don't mind barrackers on the 
ground, giving it to opposition supporters, <laughs> long yep. as it, it isn't racist or homophobic or whatever. I got abused. When I was playing footy, you go down to Port Melbourne, you know, 10,000 people are over at Dandenong or Preston. They'd be giving it to me in spades, you know. And I told a funny story. I was pl- We are playing Dandenong at Coburg in 1976 and Eddie Milo, who was Dutch, the late Eddie Milo, he was calling me a little wog. You know, I had the black hair, dark hair and a beard, and those were the days when, you know, people called someone a wog, uh, which we know you don't not supposed to do and you don't do now. But anyway, it was just um, – it was a kind of exhilarating experience to have crowd and to have banter, you know, going on. I'm not trying to defend racist <laughs> no. banter, but it was a different time. But um, we had a laugh about it, Eddie and I, later on. You know, when I kicked my seventh goal, I said, not bad for a little wog, you know. <laughs> But, um, That's how you do it. Adrenaline rush, I think, is football for the players and for the crowd. Yes, expunging anxiety. That, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Phil, I wanted to ask you about your role and view about change. So you've, since the murder of your sister, Vicky, you've been instrumental in this social conversation, but also mm-hmm. in in real change. So you um, played a very significant role in reforming provocation laws in Victoria and Obviously, I think it seems that, you know, sport for you has been a very positive um, force for social good and for social change. Do you think that um, people who are involved in football today are doing enough to be participating in this conversation about violence against women? Do you think more can be done? What would you like to see people doing? Not enough. I was really taken by uh, Jimmy Bartell speaking about his father. What was profound about that for me was that men don't give their father up you know in the, in our society men are, men are very respectful of their dad and dads play a major role with boys and there was Jimmy who was prepared to go out and speak about it and lo and behold I bump into Jimmy on the tram a couple of days ago can right. you believe that comes over we shake hands and have a yarn and we talked about this very question so we need more men to look at the question and explore the cultural context we haven't had enough it's not good enough to just stick a white ribbon on your on your shirt you've got to be across the question football has dealt women some bad cards over the journey. There's been some bad moments and some shocking media reportage about violence against women. You could wind the clock back, and I critique some of that. But um, but football has a great capacity, like popular culture, to reform society. Racism, Winmar's jumper, Michael mm. Long, the march to the G in that big game. These are really big moments in our history. We see those big moments at AFL and obviously the AFL level has the respect and responsibility policy and I think that those players are really well educated and really well set up. When you're looking at grassroots footy which or local and community footy um, that's not at that elite level, do you think things are changing there as well? Oh, look, they are. You know, next month I'll be speaking to five clubs in the Hume Council about gender equality. You know, I'll be out there talking about how you can rearrange your football club to be more inclusive of women. And, and I, I mean, that's all changed suddenly too around women's football. But the real test is what's it like for women in the male structure in the male realm, you know. So, what, for example, as a coach, I've made it really um, a significant or uh, uh, promulgated the idea that you have women in key coaching roles. So if I'm the bloke coaching and I'm the experienced coach, you know, Kate, I could have you as my key stats person. I, I wouldn't feel like <laughs> <laughs> Well, the women, the women say this, but, you know, I often say at gatherings like this, 
you know, Emma, I'll say, yeah, but look, if the women are in the inner sanctum and I've yes. got a group of boys that are 17 or 18 and they turn and we say, Kate, what are the inside 50s? What's the tackle count? Mm. They start to see women on an equal footing with mm. the coach. And this is a little thing. At West Coburg, we have a mother doing photography for us and want it to be strategic. We have a, a woman who's doing the key stats. And we've got to change that, that whole relationship between men and women. Which brings me to another question. How important is language? Because, oh, you know, yeah. obviously you know that we had a situation last year where um, people were wearing their white ribbons but the language still lacks yeah. a bit of conscious thought, I suppose, for want of a better way yeah. of saying it. How important is language? Look, I had a great experience uh, about two, two or th- three years ago where the opposition side, uh, we were playing, were, were swearing a lot and the C word was, was, was being used, you know, incessantly. And I, and I said to our boys after the event, I said, look, let's have a discussion about this. What's your view of this? And one of the boys, well, a few of them, but one of them said quite clearly it had the capacity to be disrespectful to women. And we ended up, in after the discussion, agreeing, Kate, that we, no one in this side would use the big C word. And I thought... I thought that is so profound. You know what? What a what a what a what a great step forward for a group of boys to to um, you know, uh, in, encompass that idea. Yeah, I mean, what you're t- what you're telling us, I think, Phil, over and over again, is that you know you've had this platform through sport and been able to use sport um, as a vehicle to to promote change. Obviously, it's been born out of a personal tragedy for you, which is the very sad part about it. But you're all, you're also um, in the process of turning this into something. Great, because there's something amazing that's coming up in the next little while. You're having a game, aren't you, to celebrate the memory of your sister Vicky and other women who've been murdered um, or who are victims of violence. Can you tell us a bit about it? Well, that's going to be on April the 30th, Sunday at Coburg. And just imagine, you know, a minute silence before the game to remember Vicky Cleary, you know, my sister, my my sister's... um, Donna and Elizabeth will be there. My brother Perry's been talking about it. He's saying he'll probably do it quietly. And this is the issue about murder. It does afflict people in different ways. And I've had a public life around it, but it's not easy. You know, I mean, I cry in private about it, but I've I've kept my um, calm in public because needing to talk about it, it, it's important to articulate it well. Anyway, it'll be a big day. You know, it's 30 years since we lost Vicky. 30 years ago, she was at the ground when I played my 200th game. She blew the candles out on the cake. We laughed and joked, and I met her in the car park a a few weeks later, well, well, 10 weeks later, only a week before she was murdered. We were laughing in the car park. I had my two daughters with me. So to think that we're going to be there on this day to say, this is about you, Vicky, and to acknowledge that Vicky's role in the whole campaign... Her and mum were the, were the force, you know, the spirit behind what I've been doing. I'm a product of them. And it's going to be really profound. I don't even know what it'll be like on the day. I, I can't imagine yet how it'll evolve, but I know it'll only be for the good. What do you hope to achieve by it, Phil, and how can people get involved? Is it open to the public? People can come along? Open gate. We want a full house. We want people to stand there in silence before the game, and we want... I want the men, Emma, too, to reflect on their part, their role. And if I'm a good example of the role you can take or the path you can go or the kind of things you can say, then good on it. You know, I'll be, I'll be happy to be that person. But it's about all men standing there with their women, with their families, with, who, with whoever, and reflecting on the part they can play in cultural transformation. Phil, 
there's no doubt that you'll be an amazing beacon for men and women alike, especially on that day. And what a beautiful way to honour your sister when you talk about at the time there was no black armband worn, mm. but this is going to be such a public and open open moment for you to reflect on this and it's hard it will be hard to walk away from that having not affected you i'm going to ask you our last question we always ask people this <laughs> how is your relationship with football today uh look at um I, I, I sort of love the game. I, I don't I don't find it as alluring as it once was. I, I mean, it's a, it's a systematic, brilliantly, highly skilled game. It's a marvel to watch at times. The quality and skills of the players. But it doesn't have the same romance for me that the old VFA had. I like the tribalism. And how ironic that it's the women's game that's taken us to the old tribalism, back to the local ground, a game less skilled, less less pristine, uh, varying shapes of bodies as, as feminists are commentating on. And we're looking at it going, you know what, that's like footy in the late 60s. If you put the two screens up, they'd be very similar. So the women's game, you go, hey, back to the future. <laughs> It's so lovely to see your enthusiasm talking about that game. We, we love the women's game too so yeah. much. It's really, it's ignited a whole other side of our passion, but it's been such a thrill for us to speak to you on the Outer Sanctum. Thank you so much for the work that you've done. You've been a beacon for us all and you will continue to be. It's great to have a couple of women telling me that I was significant in their footy history. I love that. Thank you very Absolutely, much. Absolutely, Phil, and good luck with the Memorial Game. It's a terrific initiative. We'll be there and I hope many of our listeners will too. So Thank congratulations. You. Thanks very much to Phil Cleary for joining us. It was absolutely amazing and a great honour, as I said. So so for people who are in Victoria, you can come along to the Vicky Cleary Memorial Game. It's on this Sunday at Coburg. It's in Piranha Park, which is in Russell Street. It's on from 11am. The um, seniors game is at 2pm. And as Phil said, he hopes that it'll be a huge crowd. So do get along if you can. You know, when I met Phil Cleary, it was like meeting a family member. I feel like he's been in our life for so long. I was like, are you my real grandpa or my dad or something? You know, that really weird thing. He obviously had no idea who I was, so it was a little bit awkward. Um, another thing that's awkward, and um, we've been getting, well, I'm not going to say good at it because we're not, Perpetually, we're not leavers of the football early. Leaving the football early when you're losing, look, it's it's a tricky call. You feel you feel like a real turncoat, don't you, Lucy? Uh, good point, Em. Yeah, I think we've had to. I've had to think a little bit about leaving early, and I'd like your help in putting together the playbook on leaving <laughs> yeah. early. So I think we need to come to some agreement on where, how far you need to be down to be able to do it. I think. 86 points seemed like my limit, <laughs> but we employed a new method. I'd like to put some plays together in this playbook. We employed a method which I like to call the sound of music play, where, do you remember at the end of the sound of music when they're... Yes. When they leave they the sing. singing competition and they sing and, and then one disappears. Alicia Alicia is just shaking her head. I'll be the same as you. Exactly. And then that one <laughs> runs. So we employed this the other day and I left Emma to be the... Uh, where it's an awkward ploy is that the last person is the one that cops all the stairs mm. because everyone else from the rows kind of 
tiptoed out, tiptoed out. And then the last person is the poor guy. So Lucy you couldn't all leave together. No. You decided no, 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 you to so go one at a time. Pretending to you go pretend, and get a, yeah. hop a pile, go to yeah. the toilet. Lucy pretended to go to the toilet, actually did go to the toilet, <laughs> and I said, I'll meet you in five minutes. <laughs> and Geelong kicked one more goal and then I just slyly oh, grabbed your watch my bag. Oh, no, is this public perception though? You don't want to be seen to be... Don't want to be seen. Right. And I got really nervous that Mick Malloy would be out the front with a video camera and mock us because that's what he does on yep. that TV show. Yep. But then what happened is we got to the train station and there was a train sitting there just full of shamed Hawthorne supporters. <laughs> and the train of willing shame. That we're on the train <laughs> of shame and we were waiting for the train to leave and it wasn't leaving. And I heard the siren. I'm like, oh, my gosh, these people, the winners are going to see us. The winners are going to see us. Yeah, but you had a seat, so who's the real winner? Mm. I, used to have a, I used to have an absolute kibosh on that. You know, you have to stay to the end of the game no matter how bad it is. And I realise how much harder that is if you actually back for a team that loses by a lot, which is not something that's my, been my experience until quite I, recently. I, I find that leaving the game early is more crowd dependent. Like if I would sit there you and You can watch, call it that if you want. No, no, I would sit there and watch us lose because I, I feel bad for the players. If they're walking off after a tough game and you're not still there, then I, I feel worse about them. But my probably my threshold would be maybe a 60,000 crowd. Mm. I would, I'd call it and go, no, we'll get the early train. I'm the odd one out. I've never left a game early oh. and I would never, ever leave a game early. I just feel like oh, I, I don't know, it's Kate. sort of... I, no, it's, I, I'm exactly. with you, Kate. You know what, though? I will say this. You need to be at the game to leave it early. You weren't at that Hawthorne Geelong <laughs> yeah. game, so you can just shove That's that back true. in your pie That's hole. That's true. I, I had stayed till the end. On. I stayed till the end. Did you? Yeah, but oh, of God. course I was with Geelong But fans, I hide so. in the toilet. Like, <laughs> so I stay to the end like Kate and then I all go to the bar or something and then I wait till everyone's gone and then I walk out in shame. So I think we're better people. Lucy? Do you know what's worse, though? Think of... Um, you know that terrible, awful, brutal loss of uh, North Melbourne last weekend? So where you've been up all day and then you get run over right at the end yep. and they've had a few of those losses and I'm feeling for my North Melbourne friends. When you've got to leave a game like that, that's awful because that, you basically have one lot of fans that look like the zombie apocalypse. Mm. They're like Their faces are like, what just happened? They can't feel anything. Though. They're just they're numb. numb they're just numb. They're yeah. just they're just moving. Their bodies are barely alive. They're on like an iron. They're in an iron lung. You, you don't mean North Melbourne supporters generally. <laughs> no, no. I mean those ones that have been the tight actually ones. Actually, zombies. But right. can I put a call out to our listeners to say never pick up another human being and put them on your shoulders? I think I told you at Princess Park once, a Carlton won by 101 points or 102 points against Hawthorne, and people put me strangers put me on their shoulders and carried me out to the middle of the field. Yeah. Did you kick the winning goal? <laughs> <laughs> Did you kick 800? No. I was the only Hawthorne supporter oh. in amongst the Carlton supporters. Yeah, you're not a mascot. It's kind of like a funeral, like Yasser Arafat's funeral or something. That's what it sounds like. Or Lady Gaga arriving. Exactly. Just to wrap this um, section, could we maybe suggest to public transport organisations around the country that in, instead of having the footy special, they have the earlier train, maybe call it the train of tears. Yeah, yes. train of tears will be leaving 10 minutes before the final siren. Mm. Hey, um, I just wanted to just flag one more thing. When we go into each season, right, do you have an expectation that every single team is going in thinking we're going to win every game? Like, do you no, think, do the you think, that, okay, so now I'm starting to wonder what our measure of success is. And I feel like if, if someone came out now, like if Clarko came out now and said, look, we'd be happy with six wins and a draw 
and this many contested possessions every game, I feel like I could really adjust my expectations. But now I feel like I'm just free falling. I feel like Carlton does it quite well. I feel like Bolts has been pretty good with expressing what their measures of success are. But would you be up for that at the start of a season if they go, like you say, say St Kilda came out and said, look, we probably won't win the flag this year, but what we hope is to win 11 games. You mean like red ball corner pocket? Exactly. (laughs) I think that the code for that is we're in a rebuilding phase. Yes. So I think any club who says we're in a rebuilding phase is looking to maybe win four games. It's a euphemism. Is it four? I thought maybe it was six. But I think the the fun bit about it is you don't know which four. So that's why <laughs> keep coming. Six would be pressing for finals next year. I think nah. there's like a whole scale. It's but a I, moment I of truth. A, maybe your membership um, amount should be dependent on the expected success. Well, can I, I just say KPIs as, in there for Can the I team? just say as well, given that the apocalypse is, is nigh and I'm building a bunker in my backyard, I think that this would be a refreshing approach from some coaches. This could be the last season given all these omens that I – and so I think if you just came out and said, look, we're crap, we're not going to win, but what, we, what we're really aiming for is to win that game in round 17 yeah. away against Fremantle. That's our grand final. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Know? That's our moment of truth. Hey, um, <laughs> let's wrap this up, but we do have a very exciting top-of-the-table clash, Adelaide and Richmond this week. Shall we tip? Well, why would we start Ooh, tipping now? No, well, just that game. Ooh. Okay, sure. Okay. Who do you like? I'm going – I think – Adelaide. Adelaide, yeah. Adelaide. Oh, no. Adelaide. Do you think Richmond, Felicity? I said Adelaide. Oh, Adelaide. Yeah. Do you think Adelaide? I think Adelaide. Alicia? Go Tigers. Oh, oh that's interesting. Say, I'm totally Adelaide. They are on fire. I know, they're on Go fire. Eddie. Hey, um, also this weekend, in addition to the Vicky Cleary um, Memorial Game on Sunday, is the jumper presentation of the Darabin Falcons down at AH Cap Reserve. The reason why I mention it is because all of the returning 16 players who played from the Darabin Falcons in the AFLW will be there to receive their jumpers. And Sam Lane's going to be presenting the jumpers to the girls. Get down there if you want to meet some of the superstars of the AFLW up close and personal. But we would like to go out this week with something pretty exciting. Felicity, given your Essendon watch for us. I am Essendon watch. Look, this week in the Anzac Day Clash, um, Joe Danaher had a fantastic game, Um, won the Anzac Day medal. He was a standout. Everybody's seen the name Danaher, but whether you know that he has something like 15 aunts and uncles, um, with all those associated cousins, I think we'll, we'll probably be seeing a lot more Danahers over the journey. And so we just wanted to go out with a, a beautiful tribute to the Danahers that was um, written a number of years ago now by our lovely colleague here at the ABC, Libby Gore. And uh, thank you, Libby, for allowing us to, to play it. Here is a song ode to one Miss Edna Danaher, without whom there would be no Danahers. Enjoy this and we'll see you next week. Go footy. Bye-bye. Well, in a little old town in outback New South Wales, Edna met Jim Danaher and so begat this tale. When Edna married Dandy Jim, their wedding night was merry. And nine months later to the day, you beauty out Pop Terry. He needs someone to play with, for Edna no big deal. She got Big Jim onto the job and made to order Neil. Thank God for Edna, Edna Danaha, the mother of them all, who changed the name of football. It was Edna, Edna and Jim's doing. As we sing down, ah, 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 the Sydney swans are spewing. Ah. Well, once Big 
Jim got on the job, he couldn't break the habit. The way those kids kept popping out, you'd think he was part rabbit. The birth of sweet young Anthony had stirred maternal bliss. Edna heard a joke, her water's broken, blimey, out popped Chris. Thank God for Edna, Edna Danaher, the mother of them all, who changed the name of football. It was Edna. But how was she to know that after four big strapping boys she still had seven girls to go? Eleven kids, Jim was just mucking around, Edna took him serially. Cause there was Terry, Estelle, think you're doing pretty well, Neil and Tony, they like macaroni, Colleen, Christopher, Dorothy, Angela, Julie, Nerily, coming along merrily, nearly got a cricket team, better be a bloody screen, Fiona's here, have a rest, Doctor wishes you the best, backwards! Fiona, Nerily, Julie, Angela, Colleen, Christopher, Dorothy, Hedlangela, Anthony, Neil, Estelle and Terry. The Danaher clan is the toast of all Hungary. Thank God for Edna, Edna Danaher, the mother of them all, who changed the name of football. It was Edna who made the big decision. She said, 11 kids is quite enough, Jim, can we buy a television?